I don't know. I was, I was getting kind of excited there for a second. I thought you were going to sing. I was really, I was like, man, stuff's changed since I left there. Oh, so I was getting really excited, but uh, alas, it was nothing. But uh, uh, like Brother Mike said, I'm excited to be here tonight. I'm excited. I always love coming back home. Uh, and there's, there's something special uh, about what, what, what's here at Fellowship. And I know I say that a lot, and I know you hear it a lot, but uh, I love this place. Um, for those of you who don't know me, if you know a Prater, then you know my family. Uh, that's basically what I'm going to say. So I'm um, excited about this, excited for the opportunity from Pastor Prater uh, to do this. And uh, uh, if my voice cracks tonight, I pray, I pray you forgive me. I preached this morning, preached a lot harder than I wanted to, and my voice was kind of given out towards the end. So uh, hopefully we can make it through with God's grace tonight. So tonight we're going to be in James uh, chapter number one. Uh, James chapter number one. If any of you have ever made the drive from Oklahoma City uh, to Liberal, you know it's one of the most fun-filled drives um, in the history of mankind. There's scenery that you've never, ever seen. The views are amazing. And uh, it's really great when you see all those dilapidated houses between here and Oklahoma City. There's more cows than people. Uh, it's great, but uh, it was awesome to do with my wife. She always makes road trips a lot more fun. And she uh, was making mention of things that I see. Every time I make that drive, I made it many times before, and so... Made it a lot funner to do it with her, and I'm thankful she's here tonight. So James chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 18 is where we're going to be tonight. And the title of the message tonight is grammatically incorrect, and I didn't realize that until I re wrote my, wrote, uh, read my notes just now. And the title of tonight's message is, How Bad Do You Want It? I know it should be, How Badly Do You Want It? But the title of tonight's message is, How Bad uh, Do You Want It? So James chapter number 1, uh, verses 12 through uh, verse number 18. The Bible says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to, him that love him, to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot, tempt with e for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat, uh, sorry, it should just be through verse, uh, sorry, verse 17, I have verse 18 in here, but it's just through verse, verse number 17, so... Who, no, who, who is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So how badly do you want it? Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes curiosity can get the best of me. Is that like anybody else? I, I, I'm a curious person, and I shouldn't be as curious as I am. If there's something happening, I don't care if I don't need to know about it. I want to know about it. Because I'm a curious person, and it gets me into trouble a lot of times. But sometimes curiosity can get the best of us. And maybe like when you're, uh, when you're a newly licensed teenager and, uh, uh, and you're, you're, you're a teenager and, and maybe you want your, your license so bad or, or you just got your license. I don't know what that was like because I really didn't want to drive. I didn't get my license until I was 17. Uh, so when you're a newly licensed teenager and you don't have your own car and, and your mom and your dad have a car and they never let you drive. I mean, they're just always Debbie Downers and they never let you drive. They're just wanting to impede on your freedom. Mom and dads always do that, but they are peeing on your freedom. So one day, 
they're out, they're out and about on an adventure. I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're going grocery shopping because that can be an adventure sometimes. So they're out and about on an adventure and you see the keys to your dad's car sitting on the counter. And you see the keys there and you think to yourself, like any red-blooded American would, a, a spin around the block won't hurt anything. No, nobody's going to find out. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, you know, I'm not going to hit anything. Nobody comes down our street. I mean, it, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. I'll be back before you know it. It'll be five minutes tops. So you take, you take out the car. You back it out of the, the, the garage. And you, you back it out very, very carefully. And you take the spin around the block, making extra sure that there is ample space between you and any other car and any other obstacle on the entire road. And you make sure that you get that, that car back in the same condition you found it. And you think as you're pulling into the garage, I've done it. I'm a mastermind. I got away with this. This is great. Only to find out that as the garage door lifts, your dad is standing in the garage. Great moments. And you think to yourself, busted. Again. What's even worse than that is not that you're busted, not that you're grounded, not that you're punished. What's worse than that, and all parents say this, we're not angry at you. We're just disappointed. What does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. I don't understand that. We're disappointed. And then they tell you, and it makes it even worse to rub it in, if you would have just told us you wanted to take the car on a spin, we, we would have let you. Well, that would have been great to know 30 minutes ago. I didn't know that, okay? I thought this was like lock and key here. And so instead of feeling good about the fact that you just successfully drived around the block of the least busy street in liberal Kansas, you get punished. Not a smart decision. Not a good idea. You went outside of what your parents wanted for you, and you did what you wanted to do. You went outside of their authority and the result was that it costed you. It was a few moments of fun, but it costed you. And this is exactly what James is warning us against in this passage. But instead of going outside of our parents' authority, our, our earthly parents' authority, he's talking about going outside of our Heavenly Father's authority, outside of what, what God wants for our life. And he's explaining that when a person goes, goes outside of God's authority to get what they want, the result is bad. The result is bad here, but, but before he, he does this, he, he honestly wants to point us back. He gets this eventually, but before he does this, he wants to point back to the previous section of this book, and we won't go into it and talk about it, but the previous section, he goes and he talks about uh, trials, and we'll, and we'll cover that a little bit tonight, but the first thing we see here is that the believer, in verse 12, the believer who endures trials will be blessed. Now, what does that word blessed mean? What is he talking about when he says blessed here? Well, the word blessed there means that, that a man, that the man that he's talking about here has successfully made it through the trial and is happier be than before he went in the trial. How many of you guys are happy when you're done with the trial in your life? It's pretty good, right? You feel pretty good, especially when you've successfully endured it. And you're happy, or you're glad, you're glad it's over. I'm glad it's over, maybe nobody else is, but I'm glad that when my trials of life are done. But he talks about temptation here. And we need to make sure that we understand what kind of temptation James is talking about. It's, it, it's important to this passage. Now the temptation James talks about here in verse 12 is from the Greek word parasmos. Parasmos, which means to put to proof through adversity. It means to prove it through adversity. So 
the only way a man is blessed is if he endures this adversity, if he endureth this adversity that he faced. Now, when I think of the word endureth, or I think of the word endures, it always brings to my memory a marathon runner. Always brings to my memory a marathon runner. Not necessarily on mile one or mile two, but on like mile 20 or mile 21, when the finish line is still so far away, uh, but they've run so far. And, and at this point, maybe they're thinking in their, in their minds, they're thinking, at this point, it would be a victory just to finish. I don't care where I finish. I don't care what place I get. I don't care what my time is. I just wanna not, don't want to die in, the, in this place. I just want to finish. I just want to be done with this. Now, the great thing is that the marathon runner, if they're smart, they've trained their body for this moment. They've trained their body for the aches. They've trained their body for the pains. They've trained their mind for the mental fatigue that takes place, the, uh, the, what's going on in their body. And so his body and his mind wants him to quit, wants him to give up. But since he's trained himself, he, he pushes through this muscle ache. He pushes through the fatigue. He, puts, uh, he pushes through uh, the mental fatigue. And every step is excru excruciating, but he does it. And instead of caving, uh, to this desire to quit, he continues to faithfully run and finishes victoriously. It doesn't matter the place necessarily, it just matters that he finishes victoriously and he can say, I finished this, and have, have his head held high. Endurance, endurance will show people, the people that endure, as having passed the test, having been proved. Because I'm not a marathon watcher, I don't know if you watch marathons, I've, I'm sure there are people that do, they show them on TV. But I do know this, there's a lot less people that finish the marathon than start the marathon. And the ones who endure are the ones that can be proud of the, uh, the ones that can hold their heads up high. Now, I wouldn't even start a marathon because I would pass out like on 500 yards, but that's beside the point. But endurance will show people as having passed the test. And when a man is tried, he has proven himself worthy, much like how a soldier is tried in boot camp or how a student is tried in a test God places things in our lives to try us as Christians, to prove us as Christians, to, uh, to, to help us have a strong faith. That's why God places things and trials in our lives. It results in a strong faith. And he also says, though, that those who pass this test, those who get past this test and, and understand what's going on here, they will receive the crown of life. Now, the crown of life here, when obviously we think of a crown in our Western culture um, as, as a royal crown, as a crown of gold, as a crown with, with jewels on it, and certainly those, there are those types of crowns, but that's not what Paul is talking, or James, I'm sorry, is talking about here. What James is talking about here is, is a laurel wreath crown, something you see in, in, the, old, in the old Olympics. They, they would give them wreaths around their heads to, to say, these are the winners, these are the ones who've had conquered. Uh, the ones who have, uh, who, have, who have been successful here. And this phrase, the crown of life, isn't necessarily so much descriptive of the crown itself. It's not like the crown has necessarily any, any inherent uh, abilities in it. But the, the, the phrase, the crown of life, is descriptive of something the believers should strive for. And let me explain this. Eternal life is the prize for a faithful life. Eternal life is the prize for the faithful saint of God. Now, now, obviously, we know this. A person's faithfulness, a person's works, a person's things they've done for God will not save a person. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can save someone. And we know that and we believe that and we're firm in that. But, but the person who was faithful, the faithful saint of God, 
can live eternity in heaven with his head held high, knowing that when the going got tough, when he wanted to quit, when he wanted to stop going, when he wanted to stop living for God, when things were crashing down around him, when everybody around him was saying, stop doing this, he can say, I was faithful. He can say, I endured. He can say, I, I, I did this. I was faithful to my heavenly Father. And this crown here, this crown of life is promised to the, is promised to them that love him or, or them that love God. Now, them that love him is descriptive of all believers, descriptive of every single person in here tonight and, and, and through, all, through all of time who are a believer. Showing that, that God doesn't just promise this crown, this, uh, that, that we're all fighting against each other and there's only a select few that can, well, can, can be in eternity with their head held high knowing they were faithful. No, every believer can be faithful. Every believer can achieve and can get this crown of life. There, there, there is no believer who is higher and better than any other believer. We're all on, evil, uh, we're all on equal footing. But this does bring up a question of what about those believers who don't love God or who don't look like they love God, don't live as if God were the love of their life. And however, I think this shows us something quite profound, that... Loving God should fill a believer's entire life. You can be a believer and not live a life that looks like God's that valuable to you. But that's not what God intended for us as believers to live. The love of God should fill a believer's life. And, we, and when we fully love God, when we fully love who God is, God's trustworthiness in turn guarantees faithfulness to what He has promised. In other words, when we fully love God, when we fully trust God, when we fully know that God has got all things in control, we give God an opportunity to show how faithful He really is. We give God an opportunity to be faithful to us. If we go around thinking we've got it all, all under control, thinking we've got everything figured out, and we always have, have a plan laid out, we never give God, and, and we have to trust in ourselves, we never give God the opportunity to prove His faithfulness to us. We have to give Him that opportunity. We have to trust God to be faithful. Now, after establishing that a man who endures adversity would be blessed by God, James went to the flip side. He goes to the flip side here, and he addresses, uh, for his readers, and he addresses where the temptation to sin in trials comes from. Because we are going to face trials, it's just a matter of how we face them, and the reaction and the result of those trials. So, temptation to sin we see in this passage, does not come from God, but from within ourselves. Verse 13 begins with a switch of topics from trials to temptations. And obviously the word temptation occurred earlier in this passage. And in verse 12, we talked about how it had to do with trials, how it had to do with proving through testing. Uh, the Greek word parasmos. The word tempt here in verse 13 is, similar to the, is a similar Greek word, paradzo. But this word means to entice to evil. That's what this tempting is. What can change a trial into a temptation is the attitude in which we meet it. And when we fail the trial, we can turn to blaming God. A very, uh, when we can fail the trial, we can turn to blaming God. And a very similar circumstance is mentioned by James in the start of this book, earlier in chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 4. Let me just read it for you right quick. It says, My brethren, 
Count it all joy when you fall into diverse tempta temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So verse 13 through 15 is, is an account of a trial, and verses 2 through 4 is an account of a trial. In fact, you can look at it this way. They're an account of the exact same trials. They're the exact same trials, but they're two different outcomes here. There are parallel circumstances. And in the first instance, in verses 2 through 5, we understand that the trial is a form of testing where we get to experience the grace of God and, and we get to experience the faithfulness of God and He uses the trials in our lives to make us more mature and, and to help us in our faith. But in the second instance, here in verses 13 through 15, we experience the same trial as a temptation. And it leads to death. James warns us of this second of uh, the second trial here. But, but what can we gather from this? What can be learned from these two, two set of trials? The, the, the set of trial and two seemingly different uh, ways to meet it. Well, we need to learn that we need to learn that to endure, we need to learn to endure trials in a way that brings glory to God. That's what it boils down to. We need to learn to endure trials in a way that brings glory to God. Often, when we encounter trials, and I'm as guilty of this as, as the next person, but often when we encounter trials, we seek somebody to blame as to why we're going through this or, or what is happening in our lives. And often when, we, when stuff doesn't go well, when stuff doesn't go right, when stuff seems to get worse, and maybe this is what was happening to these people James was writing to here Instead of making excuse, instead of instead of uh, understanding that that hey we failed hey we've got we've gone wrong we've done something wrong maybe these people here turn to blaming God, making excuses for why they couldn't endure this trial, making excuses as to uh, why this was unfair. Maybe that's what happened here, making excuses for their own failures. But when we turn to blaming God, a problem, a problem presents itself. Because this paints God as someone who puts obstacles, who puts things in our way to make us sin. God will never do that. God does not entice people to sin. It paints God as, as one who, gives, who, who, who wants us to sin, rather than one who gives us strength to get through temptation. That's totally contrary to who God is. And though life is extremely hard and even confusing at times during trials, the last thing we as believers should do is turn to blaming, area, turn to blaming God for the areas which we lack faith in. Because God brings trials into it. He's not necessarily always going to tempt us in the strongest area of, of life. I don't know about you, but when he brings trials into my life, it's to do it in the weakest areas of my life. Show me where I'm weak, where I lack. It does not even make sense. It does not even make sense that a holy God would tempt his people to sin. That's like saying that a loving parent is going to take everything away from their child and leave them alone when they reach 16. To strip everything away from them. Now, I'm not saying you don't want to do that at times. I'm not saying you didn't ever want to do that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you don't, that you do do it or you don't do it. I'm saying that if you truly love your child, you're not going to do that. You, 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 don't, you don't make them pay for their car insurance or pay for their cell phone or, or pay for the trips or pay for whatever else they do. You don't make them do that or, or mow the yard because you want their lives to be hard, though they may think that. 
You don't do that because you want their lives to be hard. You do that because it grows them as people, right? It makes them mature. You love them, therefore you would never want to do anything to hurt your relationship with them. Parents, can I, can I get some amens on that? You love them, therefore you don't want to hurt your relationship with them. That's counterproductive. It sends mixed signals. God is the exact same way with his children. He doesn't put things in our lives that make us sin. He puts things in our lives that help us grow as Christians. He doesn't just put things in our lives because he likes to sit up there uh, in his easy chair or whatever they may view God as doing, saying, hey, you know what, I want to see how tough and, and, and bad I can make my children's lives today. No, he says, he says, you know what, he says Dalton, is, he, he's a little slacking in this area. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send this into his life so that he can, he, 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 can, he can come face to face with the fact that he is weak right here. And he can acknowledge that, hey, 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 he needs me. He needs grace from God. You see, if we don't respond to our trials correctly, that's not, that's our fault. That's our fault, not God's fault. If we don't respond correctly to our trials, that's our fault, not God's. Now, James asserts here, I want to make sense, James asserts here that God never tempts his people to sin. I, I, but I want, to make, I want to make sure that we understand this. James does, James does not claim that God does not ever allow temptation to sin into the life of a believer, okay? God, in anything in a believer's life, is allowed by God. Okay, so he may allow something into your life that tempts you to sin, but he never himself tempts you to sin. Okay? Nor does, it, nor does James imply that God never, uh, never, never tests us, because obviously he does test us. He is not denying that God subjects men to testing. He's not denying that God tests men. But he does deny the claim, he does vehemently deny the claim that God tests men to sin. He does not ever tempt anybody to sin. But then we come to verse 14. Then we come to verse 14, and James pretty much slaps us in the face, <laughs> or slapped me in the face when, when I read this, because James says, James says, we go about and we make all these excuses as to why we sin. We can blame it on this person. We can blame it on this person. We can blame it on this circumstance. We can blame it on that circumstance. We can even blame it on God if we want to, but James says none of those are to blame. You know what's to blame? Yourself. The temptation to sin comes from within ourselves. It comes from within us. And he talks about how every man does this. Every single person, every single person experiences temptation to sin from within. There's not a person exempted from this. Everybody does. Now understanding that, let's define a few terms here to understand what James is saying better. So he talks about the term lust here. Now a lust is something, uh, is, is a longing for something. Especially a longing for something which is forbidden. Uh, much like, I've never experienced this because uh, I don't diet, but much like how a person uh, who's on a diet longs and lusts after chocolate chip cookies. Okay, if I was ever on a diet and you want to break it, that's how you break it. Now the chocolate chip cookies, especially after they just come out of the oven and they're kind of, ooh, mm, I'm making myself hungry just now. Uh, but you can smell them and they're great and you're like, this is great. Now the, the cookies themselves already look good, okay? They, they already look like you want to eat them. But because you're on the diet, they look about 100 times better. And they look like this is, this is going to be the greatest thing ever in life. And once I eat this cookie, it's great. 
It's like the devil's tempting you to sin. It's like Eve, and your and your evenness is the devil, and it's evil, and it's not cool. So chocolate chip cookies are great. So the word entice here, so that's what lust means. So lust means a longing for something that is forbidden. Now the word entice here has a serious meaning as well. It means to entrap or to ensnare, much how, 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 how an animal would be trapped or an animal would be snared here. It's almost as if James is saying once the lust, once the, the desire reaches this point, there's no going back. Because once you convince yourself that this thing is right, you're going to do it anyway. That's a key part of this. Once you convince yourself that a sin is right, you're going to do it anyway. That you deserve it. And when James says a man is drawn away of his own lust, we often think of maybe something sensual, and this is definitely applicable, but it's definitely broader than that. It has to do with much, much, much more than that. It's going outside of God to get anything that you want that God does not want you to have. It's broader than, it, it, that's basically what it covers. It's, it's putting your family in debt for that new car that you just have to have. It's, 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 it's spending the money, uh, it's shopping and, and, and going on a shopping spree with the money that you know God wants you to tithe. It's going outside of God's will. It's anything that you want above what God wants for you. Anything that you want above what God wants for you is a lust. It might have been something, and, he, and here's the tragic part, going back to the opening, opening story, it may have been something God even wanted to give you in the future. Something that was great, something that was awesome, something that was, that was, that was, that was wonderful. If you were to just ask God for it, if we were to just ask God for it. But we decide and we get impatient and go against what the Lord wants, and we, we get it now. We want it now. And the result is that you become ensnared by whatever it is that you wanted. When a person is ensnared by their lust, the things of God don't matter. When a person is ensnared by sin, the things of God don't matter. All that matters is continuing to fulfill that lust until not only does it ensnare your mind, not only does it ensnare our mind, but it ensnares our entire life. And listen to me, friends, that is what sin does. It does not stop where Satan says it will stop. It does not stop where you are convinced that it will stop. It does not stop until it ensnares your entire life. And James says that when he says that in verse 13, that sin ultimately brings death. And the times in my life when I've been the most lonely are the times when I have been or went outside of God's will to get something that I wanted. They've been lonely. My continual sinning has placed a wall between me and God. My, my joy is gone. My, my contentment is gone. Now, obviously, sin didn't take away my salvation, but it definitely took away the benefits of it. I don't have fellowship with God anymore. I'm basically as good as spiritually dead because I don't talk with God anymore. My Heavenly Father doesn't want anything to do with me because I am living life habitually in sin. Now I want to make sure we understand before we start freaking out every time we mess up or every time we break the law, like going over the speed limit, the death this sin brings about, the, the result that this sin brings about is not just because of one sin. Okay? If you're a sinner in this room, raise your hand. Awesome. I was hoping, no, I was hoping there would no, be no hands that weren't up, okay? We all sin. 
We're sinners, okay? That's who we are. God understands this. This isn't talking about the sin that we do because we can never achieve perfect holiness, okay? God understands this. What James is talking about here is a life that is continually and habitually lived in sin. One that knows what's happening in their life, one that understands what they're doing is wrong, but continually stays in that sin. Okay? I want to make sure we understand this so so that, that we know what he's talking about here. And obviously he's not talking about lost people. Obviously he's not talking about people who, who've never experienced salvation since their spirits are still dead. Their spirits were never made alive. But he's talking about those who have chosen, he's talking about those who have chosen the pleasures of this world over the cross of Jesus Christ. Sin has never brought about anything good. Now, God in his grace can take sin and make something good out of it. And thank the Lord that he does that. But sin in and of itself brings death. Nothing good comes from sin and of its, sin itself. It only brings destruction. In the moment, sin makes us feel great. In the, moment, uh, in the moment when we get angry at somebody, we feel great. But afterwards, we feel used. We feel guilty and defeated. We feel Sin brings destruction. It brings unnecessary debt. It causes broken lives. It shatters relationships. It places the roots of addiction. Going outside the will of God to get anything in our lives is nothing less than destructive. But James isn't in there, thankfully. Once he's communicated that sin is not good and and sin is not good and only destroys, he then tells them, They should not be deceived. And why they should not be deceived. Now believers should not be deceived because every good and perfect gift comes from God. Amen? Every good and perfect gift comes from God. James tells his believers here, his fellow believers, he says, do not err in verse 16. Verse 16, I'm sorry. Now err means to roam or wander or seduce away. He says, don't go away from what you learned. James is not so much warning us here to be weary of outside influence as he is warning us to be uh, warning us to not be led astray by our own hearts, warning us to not be led astray by what we uh, what we want. Remember what I said about being drawn away that we're drawn away of our own lusts. Our hearts are 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 prone to sin. Are prone to want that sin. Not outside influences that, 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 force, that, that, that come in and, and influence us. Yes, that's, a, that's part of it, but we're mostly tempted by what we want. It's important to be careful what we allow into our hearts. Because something innocent can turn into something incredibly deadly. It brings to mind the words of Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We are prone to deceive, in, to deceive even our own selves unless we constantly guard and preserve the truth. Because the truth is that every good and perfect gift comes not from sin, but from God. Good here means beneficial. Good here means something that's going to benefit our lives. And perfect here is referring to completeness. So James is saying that every gift that is beneficial and every gift that makes you feel complete does not come through sin, but from God. I never thought of it that way before I studied this passage. 
Everything that ever is a blessing to me and everything that ever helps me and everything that ever makes me feel complete isn't because I went and connived to get it. It's because God saw fit to bless me with it. And those who have lived long enough can attest to that. Sin will try to convince you that by following it, that following it is the way to a life of fulfillment and happiness. But that is dead wrong. Sin is not the way to fulfillment and happiness following God is. The only way to a life of fulfillment is by following God and his word. Now, again, if you don't believe me, take James' word for it. He says in verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. Is from above. God will satisfy you. God will satisfy every need you have in a way that is wonderful. And makes you feel complete. It makes you feel whole. But the question is, will you be impatient? Will I be impatient and seek it out ourselves? Will we be impatient and seek it out ourselves? You see, James, James, sorry, my, it's me. James asked the believer this one question. He asked the believer to ask, them, ask themselves one question. What desire do I have that I believe God will not fulfill? Ask yourself that question today. What desire, what thing in my life do I have that I believe God in his goodness, God in his greatness, God in his, uh, his powerfulness will not supply in my life? Because honestly, why would God place a desire in your life that he does not plan to fulfill in his own time and plan. What joy does that bring God? What, 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 what pleasure does that bring God? If you, if, you, if you know that God wants you to get a new job, maybe instead of, uh, instead of jumping at the most, uh, at the most um, um, financially beneficial job, the one with the most zeros, and those things are good, why, why don't we let God direct us to the job that he wants? Or instead of going to the, uh, if you know God wants you to go to college, instead of going to the college that has the best social atmosphere, or the college that has, that's the furthest away from home, or the college that has the best academic excellence, why don't you let God place you where he wants you. Now we can apply this to any number of areas in our lives, and we can apply this to however to, to numerous things, but if you know God wants you to do something, don't just jump at the greatest thing that you think is out there. Key words, you think. Why don't we just decide and, and, and ask ourselves and, and make the commitment to choose to let God decide? Why don't, we, why don't we say that, that, that whatever God wants is best? Why don't, we jump at, why don't we stop jumping at what we think fulfills our desires, what we think fulfills our wants? Because wanting the best, now understand me, wanting the best is not wrong, and in our eyes it looks smart. Honestly, wanting the best looks smart. But it could take us out of the will of God. And it's out of the will of God somewhere that you honestly want to be. It's not somewhere I want to be. It's not something I want to do. God only knows how to give good and perfect gift, gifts to his children. God doesn't, give, God doesn't give duds. You ever got a Christmas present that was a dud? It's a bummer, man. Socks again? Okay, now I like socks. But when you're, when you're eight, man, you don't want socks. No, you want a PlayStation. 
Yeah, that's what you want. God doesn't give duds. He only knows how to give good gifts. He only knows how to give perfect gifts. He only knows how to give beneficial gifts. That's just who God is. Now in the latter part of this verse, and I'll cover it very quickly, but in the latter part of this verse, James says that there is no variableness nor shadow of turning with God. Now, the term variableness, uh, the term variableness has the meaning of transmutation, and I know we use that, ver- that word all the time in our everyday language, uh, but in case you don't, uh, the word transmutation means, oh, sorry, I'll just go with the pulpit, guys. Um, so that word transmutation here means to, uh, <clears throat> sorry, let me, transmutation means the change of anything uh, into another substance or into something of a different nature. So what it means is turning, what, turning something that, man, I'm going to pull the mic now, something that, 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 is, that is one thing and turning it into another thing, much like how a diamond forms, okay? So transmutation here. And this is important because God cannot change his holy nature. God is immutable, which that word immutable is just a big theological word for meaning God cannot and will not change. He is who he was, and he is who he always will be. The phrase there, then, shadow of turning, refers to uh, astronomical phenomena in the ancient world. What it means, basically, is that uh, the, sh- the, the, the stars in the sky are always moving. They're always changing. They're always going, uh, going different places. Uh, they always seem to be, to be, to be moving here. And what, what James is trying to say here is, just like the stars are always moving, uh, there's always shadow of turning with the stars. There is no shadow of turning with God. He's reinforcing the fact that God cannot and will not change. He was, is, and forever will be the same faithful and holy God. In verse 18, James wraps up this section of Scripture. Sorry, verse, in verse 18, he wraps up this section of Scripture. And, and, and he says, every good and perfect gift is from, from God. Now, I want, you to under, I want you to understand this. God made this world perfect. Amen? Sin ruined it. God made man perfect. Sin ruined it. God made the universe perfect. Sin ruined it. Sin ruined everything God made perfect. Everything. And one day, praise the Lord, God will destroy everything sin has ruined. Everything. But God sent Christ, and I preached about this this morning, God sent Christ on the cross to redeem mankind from his sinful state. He sent Christ to die for us so that we wouldn't have to die, so that we wouldn't have to go to hell, so that we wouldn't have to experience those things. And one day, God will take all those who have chosen to follow his will, which is salvation through Christ, and bring them to live with him. Get this. This is crazy how this thing plays out. When we, get to, when we go and we get to live with Christ, and he destroys everything sin has ruined, it will be the ultimate way that God will prove that sin leads to death, but his gifts lead to life. We won't ever have to worry about it anymore. James is trying to get us to see this one thing, 
The believer should stay in the will of God because his gifts lead to life. If God is so sovereign, if God is sovereign, why won't he supply in his timing? Won't he do that? If something, if something is God's will, you don't need sin's help to get it. If God really wants to give you something, we don't have to connive and try to do different things to get to it. If, if it's his will, he'll give it to us in his timing, as long as we follow him. We shouldn't try to come up with our own plans and fulfill our own desires, because if God has placed a desire in our hearts, he obviously intends on fulfilling it. Don't let our lust, we shouldn't let our lusts lead us to destruction. Let your desire, I pray that my desire, is to do the will of God alone and see how satisfied we become. Because sin promises death, sin, or sin promises life, sin promises good things, sin promises things that, 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 that we could never imagine, but the result is that sin brings destruction and sin brings death. But God says, I'll give you life. And guess what he brings? Life and goodness and faithfulness. So I don't know what you're going through tonight. I don't know if anything in your life is, if everything in your life is peachy keen. Obviously, don't. I just got off out of the car at 4.30. Uh, but if there's anything in your life that we're seeking outside of God's will, I pray that we get that right tonight in this moment of invitation. And that we would turn back to seeking God's way and God's will because his gifts lead to life. Let's pray tonight. Heavenly Father, above Lord,